Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Nick Newman is the lead author of the Reuters Institute Digital Report and a senior research associate at Oxford University. As a journalist and digital strategist, he played a key role in shaping the BBC's internet services over more than a decade. He was a founding member of the BBC News website, leading international coverage as world editor from 1997 to 2001. As head of product development for BBC News, he helped introduce innovations such as blogs, podcasting and on-demand video. He most recently led digital teams developing websites, mobile and interactive TV applications for news, sport, weather and local, and has been instrumental in the development of social media strategies and guidelines for the wider BBC. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Nick Newman, welcome to the Extrology podcast. Great to have you on as my guest and I really appreciate you taking the time out. I guess I'm keen to start with journalism as a career choice, if you like. As you reflect, recall, when do you first remember starting to take an interest in the news? I'm not sure I was interested in the news particularly. I was much more interested in the medium. I was interested in uh, I wanted to be on the radio in in any fashion, really. But it was originally it was about music, and I just loved uh, listening to music. I loved radios themselves, and I think the journalism stuff just came later because I realised that I wasn't probably going to ever be a DJ, and I probably wasn't going to make much money on the music side, and, and maybe there was more of sort of a, a serious career to be had in journalism. And do you remember, with respect to that music reference that you make, do you remember who? Was there a moment at which you, you know, that first record that you bought or the first time you, you, you sort of tuned into something and thought, actually, this is something that really resonates for me? Music-wise, absolutely. I mean, you know, growing up, I actually went to boarding school, uh, which is a whole other story, but, you know, just sort of discovering music and listening to, and at the time it was kind of um, Radio 1 played a very sort of, safe lot of, of records and so when you wanted to listen to real music you listen to Radio Luxembourg but it sort of faded in and out in this really odd way uh, on 208 on the medium wave and you had to and so I was listening under my bedclothes until sort of midnight for the one song that I wanted of course it's all an on-demand world now but in those days uh, you know you really had to listen to the radio for the song that you wanted it's the only way to get stuff so yeah it would be things like David Bowie T-Rex and Mark Bolan was, just, I mean, this, this was just exploding with, with youth and vigor and sort of sweeping away everything that had happened before. So it felt like an incredibly, I mean, yeah, music was so exciting at that time. And then the other thing, I was just really into the pirate radio stations as well. Again, I guess because I always was interested in new stuff and innovation. So Radio Caroline, again, this notion of these people on the high seas, you know, spinning, spinning vinyl on, 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 a, on a ship in the middle of a storm, you know, this sort of captivated my imagination for the medium of radio. And, and had you, you mentioned the not quite put words into your mouth, but if you like the tech behind it, were you one of those sort of, you know, we hear stories of, of kind of 
early radio hack, you're taking taking radios apart and rebuilding them or building your own and all that sort of stuff. Was it that kind of technical interest that you had or was it more of a natural curiosity around how does this sound transmit across the airwaves to arrive under my under my covers at, uh, at boarding school? Yeah, no, I, I was definitely interested in in the technology as well. And there was, uh, I think I must have been about 10, and I found this old valve radio in the attic of a friend's house and I determined, and it wasn't working, I determined to get it working again. So I sort of screwed in a few wires and, you know, had a soldering iron and put it back together and it started working and it, and it, and suddenly, you know, the, that excitement when you, when the valves warm up and the light comes on and sort of words on the dial like Prague and Tashkent and you twiddle the dial and suddenly these, these, these voices from a different culture came in. It, it was just, you know, uh, electrifyingly exciting and then sort of later on you know i, I built little uh, pirate transmitters um from kits in exchange exchange and mart i mean they were pretty simple to put together with soldering iron so i've, I've always been in, interested in the how the signal gets to you as well uh, and not just the you know the djs or the music that plays on on the radio and was that something that you know it's that whole sort of nature nurture debate was that influence had that influence stem from somewhere in the family did you have sort of you know, relatives or, or, or parents who were particularly technically minded, anything of that sort of nature, or it's just a natural curiosity that you found that had developed from within? I simply don't know where it came from. I mean, my family, the expectations in the family were that you either went into the into business in some way or accountancy or something like that, or you had to be a, a sports star of some kind. So in, in my family, my my grandfather played for England. My uncle played, this is hockey, and they also played tennis. My great aunt won Wimbledon in the 1920s. So you were expected to be either brilliant at sport or brilliant at business. And I was kind of none of those things. So I guess I had to find something else. And I don't think there's anybody in my family that was in the media or had much connection with with journalism. Uh, so that's, I guess, I was fighting against something or, or just trying to find my own space. So, so you went to, you studied or you read, as I understand it, you read economics and government at LSE. Is that right? Yes, but I didn't start that way. But again, because those family expectations, I actually started doing accountancy. And I, I think that it, university for me was a liberation because, you know, you have all these sort of family expectations and then you suddenly get to university and you discover, you know, all of these new experiences. It, LSE was also incredibly international as well. But yeah, music, drama, um, all kinds of things going on. So I wasn't terribly studious. But anyway, after the first week, I said, this is absolutely not for me. And and I changed course to politics. And I don't think I told my mother until, you know, the end of that, <laughs> of that term. But uh, yeah, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a great student. Looking back now, I wish I'd spent a bit more time on the studies while I was at LSE, but I did come out with a degree. I did spend much of my time uh, booking bands and taking part in the Students' Union. Uh, so I did a sabbatical year running the entertainment programme and, um, and the bar and those kind of things. Did any of those bands go on to uh, to any, achieve anything of note? Are there any um, any uh, fascinating stories of you know I booked this band on a Friday night once and all of a sudden they're on the, they're on top of the pops the following week or anything of that sort of nature? I wish I could claim that, but my predecessor booked U two before they were famous, uh, so so they were on rock pile. I mean, I tried to do. I tried to diversify a bit. It was an interesting time, actually. You know, it was the sort of explosion of of, of punk and, and new wave. So there were lots of sort of 
fantastic new music and we focused on on a lot of that so smaller bands smaller venues but i also wanted to to experiment with other things and just things we'd not done before so i booked a lot of comedy acts uh, i remember we booked um griff reese jones emma thompson came they signed my birthday card at the time and you know so just sort of broadening it festivals you know little beer festivals with little bands just to try and and, and vary it vary it all so it was a, it was a lot of fun and and that interest in politics as such and, and world affairs and it, what was it that stimulated that yeah no i i definitely was interested in politics and you know lse was a fantastic place to be at the time and there were you know demonstrations lse had a reputation at the time for being full of leftists and marxists and but you had politicians from all sides who would come and debate in the students' union and and speak, you know, Tony Benn or many of Mrs. Thatcher's advisors at the time, you know, were actually academics at the LSE. So it was a really interesting, interesting place. The the inventor of the swingometer, Robert McKenzie, was one of my tutors uh, as a Canadian academic. So, you know, I think politics was absolutely the lifeblood and the student union meetings were extremely raucous and very, very funny where you had budding politicians. I mean, many of them are, are of course, politicians today. So people like Danny Finkelstein, Lord Finkelstein, uh, who also, you know, writes for the, for the Times, was there. And many other people of the time have gone on to become uh, MPs as well. So tell me the, the BBC, which, you know, from a career perspective, give or take, best part of 20 years, doing various fascinating things. But what was the journey to the BBC? How did you arrive there post Post LSE, how did you find yourself at the BBC? Well, I've told you about my fascination with radio. And when I was at school, I started uh, a radio station, sort of stitching wires together initially, and then sort of pirate transmitters. So when I got to to college, to university, I also ran a radio station there for sort of two to three years, only broadcast one day a week, but that was a lot of fun. And then while I was there, I started to get sort of shifts at the local radio station in London, BBC Radio London. And that's basically how I got in was was just by doing stuff for free. So, you know, they didn't call it interns at the time, but that's essentially what it was. You you went in and then eventually someone would give you a paying shift for sort of £20. So I think while I was still at LSE, I got a couple of paid paid shifts. And then, you know, I, I had this decision to make in 1981 that when I left, or 82, when I left LSE, there was a lot of unemployment around and I was offered a sort of a job with British Rail or uh, I'd failed all the BBC entrants. You know, you, you, a lot of people went for the BBC graduate programs and I didn't get into those. So what was I going to do? And I just turned down this job and said, I'll just something will work out. And I then wrote, you know, endless applications to the BBC. I had 30 rejected before they were eventually would let me in. So a lot of, a lot of it was about persistence and doing a lot of free shifts. And why the BBC? What was it about the BBC that was the appeal from your perspective? I just wanted to be on the radio, really. I mean, you know, it was it was all about it was about that. And I think, you know, if you want to be in the media and have any kind of influence and audience, the BBC at the time, particularly in speech radio, you know, if you want to do journalism, there weren't really very many alternatives, you know. Independent radio news was there, but you didn't really have the sort of range of talk, independent commercial stations that you have today. So all of the opportunities really were there. And that's where I wanted to work. And and so where did you get started? 
Uh, well, I started doing free shifts uh, at Radio London on a local newspaper program. So basically cutting up extracts and we made it into a half hour program. So I was effectively the sort of producer and editor. The presenter, you know, one of the presenters quite often came in uh, drunk at 12 o'clock and I had to stitch this program together uh, and it would get on air, you know, with well, like a minute to spare while I was still sort of editing bits together. So it, it was a lot of adrenaline involved and I learned a huge amount. The thing about local radio, if you start in local radio, I went on to do um, to work in, in Cornwall as a reporter, is they just give you so much responsibility. They expect you to do everything yourself. So as a learning ground, it, it's just unparalleled. And of course, you know, many of the sort of stars of the BBC started in local radio because of that, you know, responsibility if you'd started in national you know you'd have to shadow all of these things for, for for years before you actually got to do anything in local radio you're kind of on air given this responsibility really early on so how did how did the career evolve within the bbc in those early years uh well i mean to start with because i didn't have a job i was essentially freelancing for different people i did shifts i i was a sports presenter on on radio london so i would get up at five o'clock in the morning that was a lot of fun and you would do you know a couple of two and a half minute sports bulletins uh 7.25 and 8.25 i also did some i worked with tony blackburn somebody i'd listened to under the bedclothes but he was this was part of the soul revolution in the 1980s uh, sort of rebirth of soul music luther vandross dross um teddy pendergrass people like that would come over and we would run these events basically live shows with tony blackburn steve walsh and these sort of superstars of american soul black music and we would we would take over the hammersmith palais and it was a real thing for a few years so i, I was basically producer of that using my entertainment producer background uh, or produce some of those with with colleagues. So that was a lot of fun. It was quite mixed. So music and and speech. And then from there, I started to pick up shifts in the Radio London newsroom. I got a contract with World Service as well to do freelance reporting, and eventually landed a job with BBC World Service as a producer. And and was that a conscious direction of travel from your perspective that perhaps you'd harboured ambition to? World Service was where you'd see yourself ending up, but or was it just simply almost serendipitous and these things come about and you've you've taken full advantage? Uh, well, I applied for all kinds of things. You know, I applied for for sports, applied for local radio jobs, and the World Service. I, I guess you know maybe it goes back to that sort of experience with Tashkent and Hilversum on the on the dial. You know, I was always fascinated by, you know, not just domestic politics by international politics and interestingly when i when i kind of started in 86 it was one of the most boring times for for international news virtually nothing was happening you know we're in the midst of the cold war everything was kind of stuck and broadcasting was just like really difficult as well you know mostly it was something happened in a far off place you would get in an academic from the london school of economics across the road to tell you about it because you know the phone lines didn't work <laughs> there was no sort of communication to do the sort of interviews that we think of today there was no 24-hour rolling news at the time i remember you know at one stage uh, making a phone call to you know it was it was potluck we made a phone call to vaclav havel the czech dissident uh, home address and we got through and it was this crystal clear line. You know, you never got a clear line to the Czech Republic. And he was out. So we couldn't interview him because he wasn't in the house. So stuff like that was going on. But then suddenly everything exploded. You had Glasnost and Perestroika in, in, the, in the Soviet Union. You had that extraordinary year in 1989 with, I think on one day, you had 
the Tiananmen Square massacre. You had Lech Wałęsa um, winning elections in, in Poland with solidarity. You had the death of Ayatollah Khomeini on one day, the 4th of June, 1989. And then, of course, you know, all of the eastern states collapsed. You had uh, the Berlin Wall coming down. And, you know, I was in the right place at the right time to be covering that from London, but also uh, we went out and, and did reports from the field as well. It's funny that you should you should reference, as you were talking there about 1986 and being a, put words into your mouth, but a, a pretty dull time in terms of world affairs and politics. One of my, my natural question was going to be, what changed that? What changed that dilemma? And the first thing that sprung to mind was 1989. Tiananmen Square, I'd have been what? I'd have been 17. So yeah, right at the Tiananmen Square, the the, the, the pending fall of the, you know, the Berlin Wall, all of these things going. It was an incredible, looking back, it was an incredible time to be alive. But there's a little bit of a, you know, sort of in terms of world events prior to that in my memory, I think probably the famine in Ethiopia of any you know, significant size and scale in terms of world events would probably have been my only thought prior as to the next thing that might have sprung to mind. You know, and I'm scratching with the memory backs there, but that would have been in the eight, what, 84, 84, something like that. 84 and Live Aid, I covered that for, um, uh, for, for Radio London, did features for World Service on that as well. And that was an extraordinary event. I mean, just the way in which the world came together yeah. with these sort of, you know, with, with, with uh, the concerts around around Live Aid and, uh, you know, people really sort of seeing those pictures. And again, it just shows the power of uh, the time of television news. You know, this was before 24-hour television news. This was one report by Michael Burke and the influence that that had and the way it just galvanised people to act uh, and to come together was extraordinary. And also we'll come on to talk about just how the news landscape has changed in some depth in due course, I've no doubt. But the thing that struck me about, even when you made mention of being a news rep- a sports reporter at getting up at 5am, I was struck by how you would have compiled those reports in those days. And actually the, the you know, kind of the shoe leather that would have been worn as a journalist, uh, or indeed, if not time spent on landlines, talking to people, building radio, making calls. It, we used to get engaged tones in those days. There weren't voicemails, were there? So actually no. the, the amount of effort that must have been required of you, even just to get an insight as to one event, let alone the yeah. magnitude that you talk about on the 4th of June, 89. It must have been incredibly taxing, although I suspect at the time you didn't know any different and therefore it was just the way things were. But to get out in front of these things and to get meaningful information must have been incredibly complex. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, one of the criticisms of digital media is that people never get out of the office. And and what we did as reporters was we got out of the office. But also actually just practically how you put stuff together was just more difficult in many ways. You know, we used to we used to edit radio with razor blades and a China graph pencil. And so you would do an interview with someone and then you would spend a lot of time sort of cutting it up and putting words back together and splicing them physically with a razor blade and some sticky tape. And you could get incredibly quick at doing it. But this is just a very, very different way of producing stuff for, from, from what we do today. In fact, people have kind of lost the art of editing. You know, I would argue that podcasts are quite often slightly rambling you could do with some of the uh, razor blade uh, stitching. That's an interesting point. I mean, in terms of what you learn from that experience and therefore what it's equipped you with that you're now able to utilize, have utilized through your career. How would you describe that? Yeah, I think that sense of editing and cutting things down and getting to the essence 
has slightly been lost in media and you know to try and tell that story i mean not not just in the editing and interview but actually how you craft a radio package for example with sounds so you know you've got three minutes to tell the story uh to grab people at the top you know there's a whole art of that there were books that were written about it uh, you know and, and that people went through bbc training courses to work out and actually yeah that sort of craft i guess of doing those little mini uh radio documentaries that took you to a place and and told the story with human voices and some background and and took you through the whole thing i think some of that's been lost i think what we've got in in its place is a lot more immediacy what we lacked because you know before before telecommunications were revolutionized you know you couldn't get to the heart of the action you couldn't it was really hard to get to the heart of tiananmen square in a live broadcast you know that those things have happened subsequently uh, largely and so the news is kind of more exciting, but at the same time, sometimes you don't get as much understanding. So at what point did you start to see the landscape shift? At what point was there one particular moment? Was it a eureka moment that you recall where you think, do you know what? The landscape in terms of A, how we acquire the knowledge as journalists and B, therefore, how we deliver that message to the audience was there a point at which you thought mm, this is really shifting this is really you know there's something significant going on here i think i mean there, there is a couple of things the first thing is uh what happened with television and that was really sort of new satellite technology allowed for different type of coverage and that was really around the first gulf war in 1991 and uh, you know cnn's reputation as a 24-hour news station was really made during that period and it you know got all these record audiences but it, it it definitely opened the way the bbc at the time also did a live radio station which was nicknamed internally scud fm and, and before that you wouldn't do live broadcasting it was just too scary because you couldn't keep on air because the telecommunications weren't good enough and so now that opened the way for 24-hour television 24-hour radio five live and all the rest of it so i think that's kind of that's how radio and television changed and we had bbc world television i was kind of involved in that in the early stages in about 1992 and then the second eureka moment for me was was a bit later and that was around the internet and that that for me came around 1995 something like that interesting because I, I i recall the first gulf war i remember watching it on t watching that cnn report and, and from uh, I think wasn't there a reporter in a hotel room, and it was a, it was a, Peter you know, Scud, yeah. Is that who it was? And Scud missiles flying through the night sky. Oh, that was the John the, Simpson one, I think. Yeah, uh, the, okay. the, the Scud missile game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just famous. right. So, famously, and I, and I remember it quite vividly. Now, I was at university at the time, and watching it on a on a on a small, a relative, very small TV set. But um, you would suggest that, as you recall, about ninety five, you start. So I often think that in work terms, when did I start to see? the digital landscape start to impact the workplace from my perspective. And it would, it would have been probably 96, 97 ish would, would sort of feel like things all of a sudden started to take a bit of a different turn. But from your experience, I guess in the media space, you'd have been at the forefront of seeing just what an impact the internet and the explosion of the internet was likely to have on the media landscape. Right. I mean, I, I, as I've sort of described, I've always been very interested in the sort of how things work as well and the technology behind things. And uh, so in 1995, I proposed, uh, Al Gore was talking about the information superhighway, I think from as early as 91. And I did a six part series called World Service Guide to the Information Superhighway, which was all about, you know, the different potential of 
of the internet and what it was going to be. And some of these programs are still available on BBC Sounds. Uh, but I went to you know the US uh, internet cafes. I went. Uh, I saw a trial of what we now know as sort of Netflix. Somebody sitting in their home with a giant sort of server and fiber optic cables uh, to all the world's entertainment in Florida. They were doing that trial in 1995. Uh, we heard from sort of Singapore and India, where they also had, you know, internet in 1995 of some type and, and put together these programs. And I just came back from that saying, this is absolutely the future. So we put out the documentaries, but I, I, I was kind of arguing for why we needed a BBC News website. And it took another two years and I wasn't, you know, the person driving it, but I was certainly agitating and saying, this is the future. Were there a lot of uh, naysayers and, and cynics and, you know, that, that naturally because of the arguably, I mean, would, would we have even been able to comprehend the, the level of, of what is undeniably a seismic shift, but that when you're living through it, it's not always easy to see. Were, were there those that were kind of clinging on to the, the brave old guard, brave old world, it will always work this way, it'll always stay this way, kind of, and particularly I think with institutions such as the BBC, which f from a British perspective arguably is an institution, was there that sort of sense of, you know, we want to hold on to what we've got rather than accepting that there's a brave new world? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, huge resistance in, in the BBC. But I think what was different and why it was successful at the BBC was because it sort of came from the top. If you remember, the BBC was led by John Burt, who was a bit of a, a geek, to be honest. And he, he flew off to the US. He'd read a report about the internet and how exciting it was going to be in about 1995. And he went off and spent three days in the garden with Bill Gates talking about technology and came back as an absolute zealot. And this thing was 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 going to launch. It still took him another couple of years for it to happen. And at one stage, it was going to be commercial because they couldn't work out how to fund it and all the rest of it. And in the end, he just said, nope, it's going to be public service and it's going to launch. And so it launched in, in, in 1997. So a lot of that is down to his vision because, you know, many people in the BBC, you know, had no interest, you know, from television or radio, they had no interest in this other medium. In fact, there was a lot of hostility in the early days. Which I guess as well is consistent with Sir Tim Berners-Lee's original view and still to this day sustained view of what he believes the internet should represent and that is in effect a public utility um almost a human right that we should all have web access so it sounds like what you're saying is that initially although to your point commercial but john burt's view was this should be for the greater good there should be people should have access to information more freely i guess then therefore funding it becomes a bigger debate yeah, I, I think he got a lot of criticism. A lot of people didn't like John Burt, but I think what he did have was that long-term vision, possibly because he took time out to go and talk to um, to others and to really look what was happening in the US. And, you know, he could see that the BBC's future wasn't really about television or radio. It was built on on that, that mission to uh, educate, inform, entertain. And that was going to be expressed and always has been. You know, the BBC has always adapted. You know, it started with the radio and then the television service was the interloper and now it was the internet. And I, I think what we uh, what was really good about it is he basically said, here's 30 people, let's put them in the, in the loft and we're not going to let the culture of the BBC smother this. So it was basically like a startup. We had virtually nobody from the BBC. I mean, I was one of the very few people who were BBC staff. We brought people in from outside. Nobody at the BBC wanted to work in this new internet division because nobody was going to be using it. And I think that sort of, that sense of the startup 
and we put up our drawbridge and didn't really allow other people to see what we were doing either, was the reason it was successful. We developed our own culture within the BBC. And by the time they realized that we were being successful, they couldn't stop it. Interesting. And and, and that success to which you refer, how did you measure that? How did you evidence that actually, do you know what, this is, this clearly is, we're onto something here, if you like. Yeah, I mean, what was marvelous about it? It was, it was, you know, incredibly exciting because you were inventing the future every day, basically in in terms of the um, the new formats and the new ways you could tell stories. So that that was really exciting. At the time, I think in 1997, there were about 10 percent of the UK population was on the internet. Most people were 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 accessing via the modems. You can probably hear them <laughs> uh, drilling away as as you connected to the internet. Was it going to connect? Wasn't it going to connect? You know, audio and video was virtually impossible through through those modems. So it was, you know, a lot of it was was kind of about speed. And the initial, I mean, you know, we had a hundred thousand page views a day to start with, but within a few years, we were up to a billion page views a month, and then two billion, and then three billion, and you know, six billion. And so the growth was really exponential. You know, and that and that excitement of seeing that audience come on stream and seeing the thing that you believed was going to be world changing actually starting to take traction through you know really major world events like you know the Kosovan War, uh, the Twin Towers was a was a real sort of seminal moment where mm-hmm. where we had sort of huge global audiences for what we were doing on the internet as broadband expanded. How much of an asset do you think through that time was the BBC brand? Because it struck me that, you know, if I look at my own, I can only draw my own experiences, but there was an implicit trust growing up as to the news that was being reported from the BBC. It was kind of like, you know, if it's on the, if it's on the BBC news, therefore we'll come on to such of you know, so much of the changes that have, and, and the phrases that get thrown around these days, but nonetheless, growing up, the BBC was an institution and it was a trusted institution, as I recall. How much of an asset, therefore, did that become? You know, in terms of getting the, that reach that you refer to, people naturally think, ah, news, BBC, they've got a website, that's where I'm going to head, particularly in light of, of what were hugely impactful, world-changing, seismic events. Obviously, absolutely huge advantage to have that to have that brand. I mean, the BBC was not the first. We should remember that. Actually, the Telegraph the, it was called the Electronic Telegraph. The Guardian was there before the BBC. The CNN had been there for for, for ages. But just the the brand, you know, that was a huge thing. I mean, trust is an enormous thing around news. But I think the we we still could have blown it. I think by basically trying to put our radio and television culture and output on the internet. I think the trick was to understand that it it was about the brand, yes, it was about the quality of journalism, but it was also about the way we packaged it. It was about recognizing that what people wanted on the internet was to be able to access it at their convenience. It was about every time you went there, it had to be up to date. We had a slogan, you know, up, up, updated every minute of every day, which really helped forge the reputation of what we were. But I think the second thing was reliability at the time. Most internet sites fell over at the time people needed the most because you had this sort of surge of people coming in for the big story. And in fact, even by 2001, Twin Towers, our our site fell over under the weight of all these people, you know, wanting to get the news. And I think after that moment, we just said, this is never, ever going to happen again. We are going to be not just fast on the news, but we're going to be reliable and we're going to be the quickest site on the internet. And we made 
design decisions about that, which I think has forged the BBC's reputation. So I think that's key about the internet. It's not just about the content. It's about the package. It's about the delivery. It's about the speed. And and at what point did you start to see evidence that how we were consuming news was starting to shift? You mentioned around, you know, kind of 100,000 to a billion through the 90s that you the, these kind of world events that was shifting i suspect therefore people were starting to get real time immediacy of news reporting rather than you know having again i can only go my own experiences but grown up and you know the news i consumed was either kind of nine o'clock news six o'clock news maybe it might have been 10 o'clock news on itv the morning newspaper was delivered you know i used to run, do a paper round like we all did when i was a kid you know that that was where i'd get my first news of the day it was kind of as i arrived at the paper shop to pack the bag and think oh I would always turn to the back page and think who signed for who or what the score was last night. But that would, that would how we get, whereas now, you know, now we take all that sort of immediacy of news flow for granted. But was there a moment at which you thought this is really shifting? This is people are now, the expectation from the wider public is that an event will be immediate, you know, under, a broader understanding, maybe not the depth, but the broad understanding of what's occurring. There's an expectation, there's an immediacy of response. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's kind of different phases, really. But, you know, you, you had the first stage was just sort of people accessing it and then that very, very fast growth, people on broadband and then accessing it regularly. And then these sort of big events through the mid-20s, 2000s, you know, the Kosovan War, the elections always, you know, again, elections really, really suited online because you came in and you could really find your own constituency as well. So each time we had an election, sporting events actually were huge. And, uh, you know, later I went and ran the technology side for BBC Sport as well as BBC News. And they, they, they often really allowed you to do a lot of the innovations as well. So I think sport was one of the real leaders that brought that wider group of people who weren't just interested in news to, to the BBC's internet services. And w- was there a pivotal moment in terms of changing the the dynamic through which we consumed i mean i'm thinking that for example the launch of the iPhone, the first iphone which would have been what 2004 i think something like that 2007 yeah was it seven goodness me i'm 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 uh, <laughs> i'm a little bit ahead of the curve but I, I wonder if again we go from being quite desk-based receiving or consuming news through fixed you know through a fixed location a fixed device whether that originally have been the television or the radio all of a sudden it becomes maybe it moves from a desktop to a laptop, but we're starting slowly but surely to see that transition of news condensed down to handheld devices from the mid noughties. Was there a sort of seminal moment where you thought, Hey, this is again, we're seeing another shift. Cause it strikes me that the, the journey is getting ever more condensed. The acceleration in technology, is it Moore's law? I think that yeah. is irrelevant, relevant to processing power. You're starting to see that acceleration of, device and therefore consumption shifting ever more dramatically through your tenure with the BBC and then and then subsequently post the BBC. Right. Yeah. I mean I th- I think it, it was very much fixed. It was very much, you know, usage was in the office and so it complemented television. So you went into the office and the curves were always, you know, your your biggest peaks were at lunchtime because people were in the office. And then sort of towards the end of that decade, that really started to switch. And that's really because of the mobile phone. It's because of the iPhone, which was, you know, when I first saw it, it just sort of blew my mind. I said, this is the future, you know, 
And at the time, everyone just thought you're completely mad because, you know, almost all of the usage was from desktop computers. But now, you know, the data we have from the Reuters Institute, where I where I currently work, is, uh, you know, the majority of news consumption is now done through through mobile phones and through devices that look very like like the iPhone. Uh, and not just in text, but also in in video and, and 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 audio and podcasts and all the rest of it. So that transition, I mean, really, that's been the last decade. The last decade's been around social and mobile, and it's almost it's the second disruption. Really, those two in combination have changed news, but they've also changed society. They've changed the way in which we get entertainment, the way we buy things, you know, that mobile and social revolution. But the first 10 years was something slightly different. It was much more about distributing stuff and doing, you know, basically just using the internet as a distribution mechanism rather than as this sort of social ecosystem. And in terms of how the the development of the mobile device has changed the way that news is first and foremost how things become news, I guess, first and foremost. I think I'm right in saying, um, was it the the plane that landed on the Hudson? Something around that story springs to mind as to how the first kind of notification that something untoward or something that could have been quite horrific but ultimately wasn't, but the the plane coming in, was it Captain Sully? I think uh, Tom Hanks made a movie, didn't he? The, um, yeah, absolutely. The plane coming in and landing on the Hudson was filmed by somebody with a phone on 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 the site on a riverbank. Yeah, and then posted it on Twitter, and then uh, and you know we we used to think that journalists that was their job to capture the yeah. first image of something to be on the scene and from around 2005 i suppose the the tsunami in in thailand the the other sort of yes, classic was of the london bombings in 2005 where essentially pictures from underground taken videos actually taken by people who were on those trains those underground trains led the evening news bulletin for the first time so this that was really the first time in the tsunami as well where user generated content as we used to call it at the time essentially was the witness, was the lead of uh, television news bulletins, almost reversing the flow of, of, of journalism. The other one you mentioned, of course, with social media, I mean, starting in, I think Twitter was 2006, and the photograph you refer to is probably around 2008. But again, we started to see lots of incidents where the journalists were sort of second, third, fourth to the scene, and again, reversing the, the traditional role. And so all of that has changed what journalism is. Journalism is not so much about being on the scene first. It's much more about curating it and uh, explaining it. That's become a much bigger part of what journalism is today. It strikes me as to what you say that, you know, I can remember quite vividly where I was when 9-11 happened, where I was when the London bombings happened, how I heard of them. Mm. The London bombings were on the radio. I was driving. It was on the radio in the car. But it now strikes me that if anything of any significance were to happen on a global scale, it will arrive via this device in my hand. I'll get some sort of notification on my screen. So, it, so content is pushed to us now, isn't it, in a way that, you know, whereas once upon a time I'd have made a choice, you know, it just so happened, being a sports nut, when the London bombings happened, I was listening to Talks the Breakfast Show on Talk Sport. I, that was Alan Brazil. I was listening to Talk Sport. And they interrupted the broadcast to bring you a news, you know, a news bulletin. So I guess in that sense, it was pushed at us. But these days, it's it's we're sort of the news finds you, you turn the news notifications, finds you. but the the news finds us. Thank you. That's a much better way of. Hmm. When did that start to shift? Do you think? 
again, it's this combination of mobile and social. I wrote a, I wrote an academic paper. I think it was called "I Saw the News on Facebook," or, and it was about it was about the death of Michael Jackson and you know how everyone we interviewed said I saw it on Facebook. You know, it's like Facebook gave me the news and the the news brands are devalued in that in that conversation of course that's been part of the narrative for the last 10 years both commercially and also in audience terms is that those huge platforms because of their convenience because of the network effects are taking huge amounts of the attention and it's much much harder for news brands to build that direct relationship so i think on average now if you look at Comscore data, it's only news takes up about two, two to three percent of people's time. People are spending much more time on entertainment or on, you know, comparing prices for things on online. So, so news is much more about efficiency on the internet now rather than sort of immersion, which is, which is, you know, we used to immerse ourselves in print newspapers or with a television news news bulletin for half an hour. News is something that you sort of dip in and out of uh, almost incidentally sometimes. Do you think that that's partly the reason why that, for example, we've had this sort of proliferation of opinion and opinion shows and opinion networks or opinion shows on networks, but that to your point, once upon a time we went to these the like BBC is not a great example in this case. I'm thinking of perhaps more US related media, but we relied on those institutions such as the BBC and the journalists employed by the BBC or the Times or the Guardian, whoever it might have been over the years, to report the news. But now that reporting is done by me walking down the high street, seeing an incident, filming it on my phone. So therefore, are we increasingly intrigued as to what people think about the event rather than the facts around the event itself? It strikes me that we've got this hot, we have huge swathes of opinion. Everybody now has a voice through a social media platform, should they so choose. Is that what's driven, do you think? The more, the, the, it seems to me there's more noise around opinion and thought than there is actually about the facts behind the event itself. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the internet has definitely obviously opened everything up, right? Anyone can publish anything, anyone can have an opinion. Uh, there is zero cost of distribution fundamentally. And previously, you had to go through journalists and there was a limited number. So we moved from this uh, scarcity of effectively to abundance. And that's reduced the value of journalists. It's reduced the value of a lot of their businesses. And it's meant that there's a lot of uh, you know, opinion is easy, right? It doesn't cost very much money. Reporting, sending people to Baghdad, maintaining that Baghdad bureau is, is incredibly expensive. And so, you know, you've got this problem of sustainability. So GB News being a classic example, which has recently started, doesn't have news bulletins. You know, it's basically, it's cheap to do opinion. And, you know, the critics would argue that what that's doing is it's sort of pushing us apart, you know, because people are drawn to through television like that or through social media where anger and strong opinions really sort of get virally retweeted or 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 or, or shared more more often that's actually pushing people apart and that's some of the things that i think worries people in terms of who's going to fund uh, responsible public interest journalism on the one hand and is there going to be any attention for it if the algorithms are pushing uh, extreme opinions or angry voices well, there's a couple of things that spring to mind there. I think first and foremost, we all, you know, it struck me that much of the social media landscape reinforced this idea that you had to be in a camp. So yeah, take British politics, Brexit, you had to be in or out. You know, there was a clear divide. Are you in? Are you out? There was never a, well, 
you know, if you were considering views from both sides and trying to form an opinion as to, you know, taking, it was, no, 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 you're sitting on the fence, you're ambiguous, you're woolly, you're in, you're out. What do you think? Whether, you know, you had to be, for the last election, you had to be, were you, were you, you know, were you Corbyn or, uh, or Johnson? There was never, well, I might be somebody else. Well, no, 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 it's black or white. So that we've become really polarised. And therefore, what impact, one of the questions I had for you, what impact on the future of journalism when you've got arguably self-proclaimed or otherwise the leader of the free world, the most powerful person on the planet, espousing or harbouring the phrase fake news to the extent whereby it becomes part of the global, you know, it's, 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 it's universally recognised as a phrase. That also therefore has a, has a significant impact, I suspect, on the appetite to even consider funding public service broadcasting. And journalism, you know, so how much of an impact does someone like Trump standing on a, you know, behind a pedestal, uttering fake news at everything that doesn't agree with what he agrees with or conflicts with his opinion? What sort of impact does that have? Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, it's very hard to know whether you know this is about politicians and you know events that then shape and push uh, societies apart, or you know what's what's the media effect here? It's very hard to. To, to distinguish those things sometimes. But also, you know, the the US is, I mean, certainly from the research we've done at the Reuters Institute, the, the, the US is an extreme case and is partly driven by sort of the media environment. It's partly precedes social media. I mean, essentially what you have is um, you have uh, television networks that aren't under any obligation to be impartial as they are in most European countries. And so you've got essentially them representing different parts of the political spectrum. And that's been going on for decades, you know, Fox News on the one hand, MSNBC on the other. And that's television, as we've mentioned before in this podcast, you know, is really a very still an incredibly powerful medium. And then on top of that, you have social media, which, you know, it's very hard to do nuance in Twitter, right, in, in, in a few hundred characters. And, you know, most of the world's really difficult issues right now, whether it's, you know, climate change or covid you know these there there is no certainty here right there's there's a lot of complexity and a lot of understanding that's required there's never been more understanding you know the impact of artificial intelligence on the world you know these are not things you can summarize in in a in a short tweet uh, so i think that's that's the problem really is this how do you how do you balance the benefits of social media which have been huge in terms of connection opening up new perspectives and voices with how do you inform people, particularly about sort of these these very complicated issues, rather than pushing people apart? How do you bring people together? How do you explain complex stories? So, so what are the developments in technology and the digital landscape that really excite you right now, or that might at least give you a sense that some of these really big, meaty issues could start to be addressed? Well, I think I think we've we've seen a real a real change in the last year. I mean, COVID has been, you know, really ghastly at a, at a human level, but it's also, I think, going to have some positive effects in making people think differently about what needs to be done going forward. So, you know, I think the media, first of all, in our data at the Reuters Institute, we've just published a major report on uh, this year. We do one every year. This is on, you know, the impact of COVID effectively. And what we see is an increase in trust broadly in the media. We've seen increased usage of media, people recognizing the value of journalism as opposed to just things that are published on the internet and opinions. So we've seen a kind of real switch back to that. We've seen more people paying for 
uh, for digital news directly. So again, that helps with some of the sustainability issues. And we've also seen the platform showing a lot more responsibility. So taking down content that is you know, something they should have done years ago, really, that is unreliable or false information, but also promoting much more within the platform, reliable information from trusted journalism sources. So I'm kind of a bit hopeful that we've started to see some of the seeds. You know, people talk about us being in this sort of age of information disorder. And we've started to see the impact on societies in terms of pushing us apart. And, and I think, we don't necessarily want to go there. So we need to think about ways in which we can embrace what's happening digitally, but also make sure that we're informed correctly and we see those alternative perspectives and we respect each other. And I think how the media and social media and platforms work together on this is going to be critical. What what do you think it is that's increased that trust to which you refer? I mean, to be honest, it's partly just people's experience that they have found during this crisis that the media has told them, answered their questions. I mean, quite often journalists used to be very arrogant and say, we know what's happening and we're going to tell you about it. This crisis has almost been reversed. You know, well, I've got this question. Can you answer it? You'll have noticed, you know, Q&As, you'll have noticed fantastic data visualizations. So it's almost thinking about journalism as a service rather than just telling you what I found out. Of course, both are important, but in, in this particular story, it, it's been about that. So I, th- I think that's one of the big changes. Interesting. In, in terms of, of the Reuters Institute, so tell us about the, the sort of work that you're involved. It must be fascinating to, un- to, to be really understanding or, or at least diving into a depth of understanding as to how the world is consuming, thinking, behaving around some of these really critical issues. Tell us a bit about the work you do there. Uh, Well, I I left the BBC about 10 years ago and I wanted to do something that, and and I was really passionate about uh, this sort of move towards audience-led development and and really providing evidence that helped people make the right decisions. And I looked at, um, you know, what Pew Research between the US, which is just fantastic. And we had absolutely nothing like that in Europe that could actually tell you how fast, you know, where people were consuming on on mobile phones, which social networks they were using for news, you know, how they were consuming. So I really wanted to do more on that. So working with the Reuters Institute over the last 10 years, we've sort of built up the world's biggest annual report based on a huge survey. Uh, and then we do additional focus groups on top of that. Um, so we started with five countries. We're now covering half the world's population. And I think, you know, what we try to do is bridge academia and and journalism and provide annual insights, baselines of of evidence, which says, you know, should you take TikTok seriously now? You know, who's actually using it? Who's using it in different countries? Are they using it for news? And, uh, and, and, and try and put, you know, real evidence, usable, actionable insights, essentially, is what we're trying to provide. And, and do you therefore have any predictions as to how you see the the media landscape shaping up over the next five years? Any significant changes that you think, I mean, you mentioned TikTok, there are, my first thought is that's a great fun place to go get entertained, but would I consume news? No, but that's right. probably a generational thing. Probably in terms a generational of those sorts, thing. Yeah. So in terms of those sorts of advances, predictions that, you know, if you, if you gaze into the crystal ball, what might, what might you see happening? I think, I mean, at a really sort of high level, what, what we're seeing is traditional media, going down every year so obviously print and with covid that sort of really fallen off in the last year and that's put a lot of pressure on on the on the publishing companies but actually television too so television news that sort of evening television news bulletin yes it's come back a bit during covid but the the broad impact is down 
And that's really important because that's that was really a way of reaching very large numbers of people. But because of Netflix and people listening, you know, watching more stuff on demand, they don't necessarily hammock into the evening television news in the way they used to, unless there's some huge story. So I think the, you know the trends towards digital really is, is is where we're going. The trends towards mobile. The big question is what what is beyond mobile. I think we're going to see the internet. You know, it's been very transactional. And so people come in and they get the information they want in quite a clinical way very quickly, and then they get out again. So there's not really much sort of relationship and in some senses not much depth there. And I think, I hope that one of the things that that we're going to see on the internet is more formats that really engage people at a deeper level. And I think podcast is a great example of that. You know, podcast has been around since uh, 2004 or something, uh, I helped launch the BBC's podcast service in 2004, but they've really taken off in the last few years. And also with younger people, because their audio is a great medium. You know, talking where we started in this conversation, you know, it, it, it still really engages people. Content really engages people through people's ears. And so I, I think, you know, we're definitely going to have more devices Headphones are almost becoming a platform in in their own right, right? Uh, voice interfaces uh, to the internet. This is kind of the next the, the next wave, and to some extent, we'll have other ways of consuming the internet through uh, smart glasses. Are coming back, of course. Apple and Facebook investing in those, and news will have a place there as well. You know, news will find you through your through your contact lenses or or, or as overlays on your glasses in the way that they currently do via your your smartphone. So some changes in devices, I think, and I think uh, journalism is going through a real moment of soul searching because of the disruption it's found as well. You know, trying to, you know, there'll be free news like the BBC. There'll be more role, I think, for public subsidy of some kind for public interest journalism and then, you know, more specialist and niche journalism that people pay for. And that raises lots of questions about, you know, quality of information for people and whether they're prepared to pay for news in the same way as they're prepared to pay for Netflix. It's interesting. I think the thing that strikes me about, it's really fascinating what you're just talking about. The thing that struck me is about how the algorithms work and how you ensure as wide a range of, not opinion, but of reporting. Perspective, without, yeah. without perspective, thank you, without bias. It strikes me that, you know, for example, this is a daft example, first thing that springs to mind, if I type into one of the search engines, who is Nigel Farage? There might be an assumption that just because I'm interested to understand what his background might be, ah, is this person means he's got you know a certain political leaning, therefore has got certain political views, so therefore will push more information and the searches and the results right. that come up. You go deeper into the hole, yeah, and you go down that rabbit hole of, and you end up, you know, further and further and further to the right or to the left or whichever route down which you decide to go. And you know, I try and. I'm no paragon of virtue. You wouldn't believe me if I said I was, but I'll try and get, you know, if I'm going to go to the US, for example, I will watch Fox News and I will watch MSNBC because I want to try and, so if I go to either end of the spectrum, what are those perspectives? And that hopefully I'll come to somewhere in the middle and make a, you know, make a, a reasonably informal, okay, right, left, that's where it is. That's kind of the general overview. But is there a risk with that unless that algorithm starts to evolve, that the technology companies, there's, there's a responsibility there, isn't there, to which you alluded to earlier, they are becoming more responsible perhaps. But there's a responsibility there around how technology works and the impact that that has on how we acquire and consume information. You know, I mean, the, the problem is that those algorithms really 
are not we're not we're not designed for news right they're designed for no. for for other things you know that you, you like this you will give you more of this you know for selling things so i think but they're not the only algorithms that we see in the digital world right i mean something like spotify's discover algorithm is built in a completely different way it's about trying to expand your choices and help you learn about new Good music point. And I think, you know, the BBC and others are talking about, you know, public service algorithms. There are lots of sort of recommendation options here. And I think the real question is about, you know, transparency and giving people more control, because currently people don't have control of, of, of those algorithms. And the other thing I would say to your point about going down rabbit holes and what we want is that some people, some people, most people that we talk to, and this is the encouraging thing in our research this year, do say that they even when pressed that they want to hear a range of perspectives so there is a group of people on the far left and the far right who don't but they're actually quite small the vast majority of people want to be exposed and hear different views and i think that kind of research is critical because it's critical for the platforms to hear but it's also critical for, for publishers to hear because it should give them confidence that that's part of their role is to bring different opinions in, you know, bring the news, absolutely. But also people want to have their opinion shaped as well and they want to hear what people think and that they want that range of opinions. So I think media companies like the New York Times and The Guardian are really trying to do that. They're trying to, you know, move out beyond their base and offer alternatives. I think that's a really interesting point that, you know, ultimately the the, the digital world is not, you know, the 7 billion of us, however many there are now, is not the whole, you know, the entirety of the worldview. So to your point, I think it strikes me that oftentimes an extreme opinion, right or left or central, whatever it may be, but an extreme opinion nonetheless make, grabs a headline. So we get pushed to the margins because that's where the noise gets made. Totally. I mean, twi- Twitter is not representative, right? But but that's what the opinion formers and, and, and the journalists yeah, listen. So, so the problem is that those extreme views, for all the reasons you say, are, are getting more attention than what I often call the silent majority in the middle. And that's why, yeah. you know, research like we're, we're doing at the Reuters Institute hopefully is helpful because it's a reminder. You know, you would think the BBC, for example, is hated by everyone because you know, from what you read in, in, in the press or on social media. But actually, it's the most trusted news organisation and this vast group of people who think it's doing a pretty good job. Yeah, I know. I agree. I think there's a real risk that we start to believe the hype and that actually left or right, as we say, those extreme polarised opinions are the ones that are driving the narrative when actually there are huge swathes of people in the middle who are genuinely interested in hearing all sides of the story and then forming their own opinions. So in terms of, of this, I'd imagine it's it's all consuming, you know, the, the thought processes and the research that you're engaged in, the thought processes through which you're, you're wrestling with these really complex um, uh, challenges and 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 directions of travel for the world. But so, t- t- how do you unwind? How do you get away from it? Or what do you do to unwind and relax? Do you unwind and relax, or do you find what you do naturally very interesting? And that's that in itself is where the relaxation is found. Uh, no, and I th- I think Lee, you know the the whole sort of COVID crisis and working from home. Just uh, I'm sure other people on the podcast have talked about the same thing. You know, just makes it so much harder, doesn't it, to sort of get away from it. If, if you're trying to keep across, just keeping across all the changes that are happening in the, in the digital world, you know, it's a full-time job in itself, let alone sort of writing and providing insights on top of that. Uh, so, yeah, re- relaxation. I mean, I've, I've always tried to, to play sport. I talked earlier about, uh, you know, my tennis playing heritage. So I, I, I try and play tennis. 
that's that's quite some heritage to live up to. <laughs> it's a it's a lot, and I I definitely do. But I'm, I'm I've been playing a lot more tennis. <laughs> yeah, so so I think I think yeah, sport kind of relaxes me. Spending time with the family. Just had a my first grandchild during COVID. So oh, congratulations! That's just before COVID, actually. So that's been that's been a delight as well. Yeah, but uh, I think finding that balance, I think for, for many people, is is a real struggle, particularly in COVID times. And are you excited for the future? You talk to your grandson or granddaughter? Granddaughter, yeah, yeah. I granddaughter, mean, I think, are you excited for her for the future for her? It's these, these technology, the advances in technology, are phenomenal. I think, particularly around some of the things that we, you know, we, this wasn't the purpose of this conversation today. But you mean things like medical technology, the advances that we're making, mm. there's some incredible things going on. I think we're all going to be, generally speaking, people will. Yeah, certainly the average age will increase. It increases exponentially through generations. But I think we arguably will be, broadly speaking, living longer and doing other things. So are you excited for the future in terms of what the, uh, the what technology holds for the likes of your granddaughter? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I'm, I'm broadly, I'm, I'm optimistic about technology and always have been. You know, I've always tried to embrace uh, new things. And as we mentioned during COVID, I think it's just extraordinary how that has pushed forwards things that should have happened years ago in terms of being able to book GP appointments or sort of just basic efficiency stuff. I think what I worry about is that sort of human connection. Zoom calls are all very well. They're great for efficiency, but not necessarily for for, for creativity or for happiness in terms of, you know, the sort of the human bonding, which is a key part of work and it's a key part of, of, of life. So I think the challenge with technological advance, as we've seen with the internet and social media, is you know lots of amazing advantages, but there's these downsides we don't think about when we go into them sometimes. And it's trying to find that balance. And I think that will be a huge challenge for, for the new generation. And obviously the other big concern, and, and in this year's digital news report, we we really see this sort of generational shift, I think. You know, we're starting to see under 35s with a completely different agenda, different way of consuming news, different way of thinking about the world, who've got to live in in a planet that many people in our generation have wrecked broadly, you know, not not being stewards of of the future. So when I think about my grandchild, I think about all those opportunities, but I also really worry about what we've done and whether we've thought deeply enough about about some of the things we've done to the planet. Nick, it's been fascinating talking with you. In terms of, of where people can go to find out more about the work that you're engaged in or you know, pick up the reports, can you pick up the reports? Where would you go for, to find that kind of information? Yeah, I mean, the vision is that everything should be uh, free and open. So it's um, Reuters Institute website, just use Google and uh, all the reports are, are, are freely available. Fantastic. Well, look, I, I really appreciate your your time and indeed your insight, which has been fascinating this afternoon. I think we could have gone into hours of I had so many questions, but um, but really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Ta- thanks for taking the time out. I wish you well with all the research that you continue to undertake. And I look forward to certainly from my own perspective, reading more and hearing more about the work that you're involved in. Uh, and uh, and fingers crossed that all of these, you know, the, I guess the wonderful thing about technology, if used in the right way, it affords us, you know, many wonderful opportunities to fix some of these big problems, and uh, and hope. And there's some very smart people out there looking to address them. So, I think my, my I'm eternally optimistic. We're in for a bright future. Yeah, it's an optimistic end to a really good conversation. Thanks, Lee. Fantastic. Thanks, Nick. Great to meet you. All the best. Cheers. Hi. 
Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.